I'm Syra, a psychologist and a human rights advocate. Welcome to the podcast on recovery from coercive control, a podcast that tries to unpack how coercive control impacts mental health, what psychology can teach us about recovery, and how to promote recovery and healing to build a hopeful future. So I'm going to try and unpack a topic now that I often hear from the people who I've worked with. When they come to seek support and therapy, it comes up quite often. Uh, And it's very confusing. And it's also confusing to the people around them, I think. So it's about why there's this need or desire to go back to the person who has harmed them. And I often hear survivors speak about this incredible urge or desire to go back to the person who has treated them badly. And understandably, this is very confusing. Why is this happening? Interestingly, I've also worked with people use drugs to overcome their difficulties or trying to cope. And they've said to me that that urge they experience emotionally to go back to the relationship is harder to break than breaking their drug addiction. So it's really fascinating to me and incredible that how does this strong desire to go back that's stronger than an addiction develop? And it gives us outside an idea of just how difficult it must be to break out of this and how strong and resilient someone actually has to be to be able to walk away. And we're not even then talking about all the practical elements that keep people in the relationship, but there's also this something's happening internally. So I'm going to do my best to break it down. And it's an incredibly complex topic. So if you can bear with me and my journey continues as a perpetual student, but I'm going to share with you my thoughts on it so far, what I've researched and what resonates with me as an explanation for what is happening, what rings true for me. So we often hear people try to go back to the abusive relationship. They try to make it work. They think, oh, maybe this time it'll be different. And then it thinks the abuse, it starts again. And then all over again, they have to leave. And this time they have the added shame and guilt about why did I go back? What's wrong with me? I'm so foolish. And other people around them are also finding it hard. And then they, they can become more isolated because they're not talking about what they're doing. And I've even had people that I work with who've asked me, why do, why do survivors return to the person who's harmed them? Is there, maybe there's a small part of them that enjoys it. Maybe they want to suffer, you know, and I'm so thankful when people can speak openly to me about these questions, even though they know I disagree with them because I think a lot of people wonder these things and they're just brave enough to talk out loud about it with me and then we can have a dialogue. But for a survivor, if that thought is happening for a psychological professional or a therapist or people around them, that is so hard to hear because already they're questioning and doubting and having low self-esteem. And these questions are just going to make somebody feel worse. I think there's a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings in the general public And as psychological professionals, we are part of the general public. So 
ultimately, we need people who understand. So that's one of the reasons I want to put this out there, because I think it is hard to find this information. And it's really hard for survivors when you don't feel heard or understood. There's a lot of theories in psychology about trying to make sense of this urge or pull. And I just wanted to say these are all theories. They're not facts. So when I look for reasons, I'm looking more to science about what we know about humans, human beings in psychology. So before I go into the psychological explanation, I just want to give a nod to the practical and pragmatic reasons that add to this with going back. For example, finance, employment, legal status, housing, children, and these are just a few. I'm sure there's more that I'm that I'm missing. And I usually say to people, well, it's also very human and normal that if you have care and empathy, that you're going to want to go back and try and make things work. I think that's quite, you know, most people have care and compassion for people they've spent time with. Um, so that's quite a normal desire, I think, to try and reconciliate and have a dialogue and try to repair. But now I'm going to try and unpack this through the psychological explanation. So why this urge? Why does this urge develop this feeling that's intense urge to go back? So I'm going to start with how important the need for connection is in humans. And in psychology, we would call this attachment. So if we think about attachment from an evolutionary perspective and human beings as a species, we can see just how fundamental attachment is to us on a neurobiological level. By looking at the research experiments, I always show people these experiments on YouTube by a scientist called Harry Harlow that he did on rhesus monkeys in the U.S. in the 1950s and 60s. And I don't think this research would work in the present day because it was quite cruel to the monkeys. But nonetheless, it shone a spotlight on just how important attachment is to us as humans. So they separated the baby monkeys from their mothers for different periods of time, Harlow. And at some point, he gave the baby monkeys a surrogate mother made of wire and wood. So in some of these situations, the baby monkeys were presented with this wire and wood mother that had food and a wire and wood mother that was covered in a soft cloth. And what happened with these monkeys is they overwhelmingly preferred the soft cloth mother, wire mother, even over food. So what this says is just how important this need for comfort and care is to us as mammals, as primates. This is why we think this is a cruel experiment, because even watching it, we're uncomfortable, we're horrified. We understand from inside us how much we need this. Let's go back to attachment and this need about why do we have this pull then? So what happens with this attachment? We know that we need a secure attachment in order for us to develop, to regulate, and to feel safe. So we would use the term a safe haven. We often talk about secure attachments with children. So when they have a secure attachment, they're more at ease. They can calm easily. They're more able to learn and explore their environment. Why is this? Because the child 
trusts that the adult who cares for them, who's around, will support them and meet their needs. So this is what we hope to have for children, but it doesn't always happen. So the opposite of the secure attachment is an insecure attachment. So an insecure attachment develops when the caregiver is inconsistent, the needs of the child are not always able to be met, maybe the parents are anxious or chaotic or just can't regulate themselves, let alone regulate the child, perhaps they just ignore the child's needs. Ultimately, the child's needs are either not met sensitively or they might not be met at all. So what I'd like to take on from this is that secure attachments are not limited to childhood, right? So we need secure attachments and healthy connections as adults as well to feel regulated, to feel secure, to feel confident. So if we think about attachments in an abusive situation, normally what I hear and what I believe is that people don't walk into abusive relationships. They don't know that that's what's going to happen. So when we start the relationship, we often hear the term with um, love bombing. What they're doing is building a secure attachment there. There's a need there that we have. Everything seems perfect. There's intimacy. There's a lot of care and attention and affection. And it really is about building that safe place, a trusted place to go to feel good. And because this is an essential part of us as being human, this feels really good. So we become attached. We feel calm. We feel connected. We feel safe. We feel heard. We feel validated. And then what happens over time is things begin to change. And the person who is abusive will create situations where there's feelings of fear fear and terror. And this can happen verbally, this can happen physically, and they might begin quite spaced out over time. So an incident occurs that could be quite chaotic or terrifying or distressing, and we want to fix it. And we want to get back to that secure attachment. And over time, these incidents become closer in time and they might escalate. And it's always about wanting to go back to that secure attachment. We know it was there and we want it back. And these dynamics are really well explained by Alexandra Stein in her book called Terror, Love and Brainwashing, which I highly recommend. And she explains how in this confused state, this disorganized attachment that's created, that we can't think clearly and internally there's a conflict that causes one to collapse mentally. And we're more easily prone to adopt what others around us are telling us because psychologically it's just easier. And over time, the framework and thinking of the abuser or the cult or the people around us, this is how terrorism also works. It becomes internalized and in our head, we become confused as to what is reality. And we start to see things through the way that they're telling us to see things. So when the person separates from the abuser, then that pull to go back is that desire to get relief from that dysregulation. So that person or the organization or the group that caused the dysregulation also is the same people or person that can get you back to the calm, connected state. 
it's really powerful, that dysregulation. And we want that resolved, that need for resolution. So what happens is you go back, you get that period of calm, you feel that resolution, the relief, you feel regulated, and then the cycle happens again. So for me, my understanding is that emotional pull is that need to go back to that safe haven and relief that comes that horribly they've created. And that feeling can be more powerful than an addiction is what I've heard. And that feeling needs to be ignored and they have to bear through it. And over time, the survivor learns to cope and manage the dysregulation and with distance and time. And therapeutic tools help in learning how to manage that dysregulation. It does eventually subside. So for me, this abuse exploits the human need for attachment. So just based on that, the attachment from childhood is not fixed in stone, and attachment styles can change. And this would explain why I've worked with women who have told me they've had secure attachments with their parents or with a, with a caregiver and had relationships that have ended amicably and there was no abuse. And yet this relationship has happened to them. So even if you've had a secure attachment in childhood, this can happen. And I often get the questions, uh, well, then maybe people who have experienced an insecure attachment in childhood, they're repeating what they know. And my answer to this is if you've had difficulties in your childhood or young adulthood, you will be more vulnerable to abuse because you may not be familiar with what secure attachment feels like. You may accept behaviors in the beginning that someone who's had that experience of a secure attachment say, no, that doesn't feel right. And they would have that trust in themselves. Or if you've had an experience of an insecure attachment, we may not have as good of a boundaries. These behaviors might become normalized, so we just don't know any better. But that doesn't mean someone is looking for this kind of relationship. It just might mean they're less good at filtering out these kinds of relationships. Um, and it's also not inevitable that if you've had an insecure attachment that you, you'll go on to repeat this. Because people can go on and have developed secure attachments, and if they're lucky enough to have that opportunity. So that need for comfort and care is important to us as humans, and healing from a relational trauma means making secure attachments with people around you is key to recovery. Other people help us regulate. When we are regulated and we feel safe and connected, we can learn, we can manage ourselves internally, we have the capacity to run our day-to-day -day lives, we can meet our goals. And this kind of brings me on to what happens in therapy. Uh, when people are struggling with post-traumatic stress, I often recommend compassion-focused therapy. And that's because it's based on this, it's informed by this evolutionary need that we need to balance our regulation needs, the soothing system, the compassion, and it highlights how compassion plays a role in regulating the threat system. And just to think about how powerful compassion is to threat, 
just a small example is if a small child falls over, they get hurt. What is it instinctively? The first thing we do It's to go in to give that child care, affection, concern, attention. Someone said to me once, compassion is the bomb to threat. So bringing in compassion and recovery on multiple levels and secure attachments with people are both really important parts to recovery. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your journey to understanding what has happened to you and provided some new insights and perhaps hopefully even helped you feel less alone. I would love any feedback, helpful suggestions, or ideas on what you would like to hear more about. So please do get in touch with me at drsyracon at protonmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to hearing from you.